You know that friend of yours that's always posting COVID-related conspiracies on Facebook? Why do they do that? And what about your other friend, that one that posts every other day some negative article about Donald Trump? Why do they do that? Why is it that you can pretty much bank on a guy that lives out in the country and likes to hunt voting for Trump? Just like you could bank on a college-educated woman living in the city by herself voting for Biden. I mean, I didn't see a single Trump sign in anyone's lawn here in South Minneapolis. But as soon as I got out of the city, I'd see Trump flags flying off the back of big old pickup trucks. Why has America's death rate during COVID been so much worse than in nations that have less individual freedom? And yet, why does America seem to always have a higher gross domestic product, be wealthier, and seem to create more world-changing inventions? Is it possible to be good at both? Or do you have to choose? Make a lot of money, be pretty prosperous, or be really bad at pandemics? In today's episode, we're going to take a look at how culture acts as software for our minds, shaping our perceptions of reality and programming our values and behaviors. We'll compare the cultural values that happen on the macro, national level, the societal level, as well as look at how local cultures and subcultures like church communities develop unique values and attempt to interface with the larger cultural values of their nation. Are there American cultural values that are at odds with the values of Jesus's kingdom of God culture? How do we begin to even see that if our culture shapes our perceptions of reality? You're listening to Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making, and I'm Paul Anleitner. Thanks for listening. Today's episode and all of our episodes are brought to you ad-free by supporters on Patreon. Thank you all for supporting. In the 20th century, a Dutch social psychologist named Heert Hotsvidi, that's G-E-E-R-T, H-O-F-S-T-E-D-E. I know that's a tricky name for we Americans to try to uh, pronounce in his proper Dutch pronunciation. Heert Hotsvidi produced groundbreaking research in the field of cross-cultural studies. Along with being a professor, Holtzfeedy was also employed by IBM, and that afforded him this incredible opportunity to use the computing and data analysis prowess of the company to embark on his pioneering work, a work that analyzed cross-culture similarities and differences in values and behaviors. This research led him to developing a four-dimensional rubric. This rubric assessed and compared national cultural values. Now later, Hotsfidi would add two more dimensions, hence why his work is commonly referred to as the six dimensions of culture. Some people only recognize five. I'm going old school here, and I'm going to focus in on his original four, the four dimensions of culture that uh, came out of his initial research. Before we do that, we need to lay out how culture functions as what Hotsfidi called mind software. This is going to be necessary to help us ultimately answer or at least attempt to have reasonable answers to the initial questions I posed at the top of this episode. Questions about why, you know, some people are prone to conspiratorial thinking about COVID or 
whether they love or loathe the polarizing Donald Trump figure. So in order to get there, we need to understand the different levels of mental programming, psychological programming, the, the, the things that shape the way we think. There's three unique levels of human mental programming. Understanding where culture is situated in this hierarchy of our programming is important because we, we don't want to over-assign too much value to the role of culture in shaping the way we think and view and interpret the world, but we also don't want to underestimate its importance. So, uh, looking at these three levels of human mental programming, let's, let's start with the macro-level influence, and then we'll move to the, the smaller, or I should say, maybe not smaller, that might not be the best word, but more precise, micro individual level of mental programming. The first level of our mental programming is our human nature. Now, whether you want to describe this via the biological frame or the theological frame, all humanity does share a basic human nature. These are the values and behaviors that we can see across time and across culture as a species. If we wanted to start by maybe framing this in the biological frame, we could put it like this. You know, we know that as a unique species, we share common biological drives, appetites, desires, such as things like our survival instinct or the need for social acceptance, or the desire for procreation among adults in our species. Just as we might see certain universally shared values and behaviors among chimpanzees or blue jays or dolphins, we as a human species have a universal and inherited programming this is kind of like written into us. Maybe we want to say at the hardware level. Now, that's the biological frame, right? So I, I'm comfortable with that framework. Maybe some of you prefer to start with the theological, and I'm, I'm fine doing that too. I think in the theological frame, as Christians, in the Christian tradition, we also affirm that there is a universal, basic human nature, something shared, a commonality shared by all humanity. In the theological frame, we could say that God creates humanity as image bearers, called to care for and steward creation, to live in communion with him and to live in loving community with each other. This is part of a biblical anthropology of what humans are. We're image bearers. We've been given a purpose and function in God's creation to care for and steward creation. He's called us to live in communion, intimate, loving communion with Him and loving community with each other. This is part of our universal human nature. We desire these things. This is where our, our desires and appetites are designed to be oriented towards, oriented towards caring and stewarding creation, towards purpose, towards communion with God, towards loving community with each other. But as part of the theological frame, we also acknowledge part of human nature. Our human nature has been marred by what we call the fall, the, this, this cosmic event, anthropological event, 
where our design and our purpose was perverted by the presence of sin, sin which bends our appetites, bends our affections towards selfish perversion and dysfunction. And on that level, Christians theologically have historically said all humanity shares in that as well. That is part of our human nature, some might say our sinful nature, but you could also, again, frame it in the biological sense. You know, the the biological sense, we have these evolutionary appetites, some of which are bent, bent towards selfish perversion, selfish um, self-preservation, prone towards dysfunction. We acknowledge this. So at at the fundamental, or I should say even the macro level, this first level of our, our programming is that we all share in this basic human nature as a species. It is not something that we learn. It is something that is biological and inherited. It's passed down to us as a species. We have this just like a blue jay, a chimpanzee, a dolphin has as a whole particular, if we can say values, does a chimp have values? I think in a sense, maybe limited, (laughs) maybe uh, much more limited than, than a human's values, but certainly animals have values, they have drives, they have aims, and they have behaviors. And we can see commonality among particular species. This is how we even designate differences among species is on some of this, this level. So that's the first level. Again, human nature, it's inherited. There's, yeah, you know, there's like nothing you can do about it. You have a human nature. The second level of our mental programming is culture. Culture gives unique shapes and expressions to the fundamental programming of our universal human nature. We have national cultures, we have local cultures, we have family cultures, religious cultures, and, and even other subcultures. Like you have sports culture, you have arts and entertainment culture, you have all these different sorts of subcultures. You know, when I was a kid in high school and in college, you had emo culture, you had goth culture, you had hip-hop culture. And, and within each of these cultures, there's a a level of mental programming that happens. It shapes your values. And as it shapes your values, it, cha- it shapes your aesthetic preferences and the way you dress. There's certain rules and then certain expected behaviors within culture. So the cultural level is the level at which the human nature finds unique expression. That's why we can say, now this is the dangerous part, right? If we underassign value, if we underassign value to culture, if we underassign it and just say all of humanity acts this way, there's certainly a danger where we look at certain things that might be valuable to particular cultures. And because we're trapped within our own cultural lens, we look at those things and we go, those things are, are against human nature, right? They are, um, they are things that shouldn't be acceptable. And it's like, hang on, no, this, this could be just a cultural variation of that universal human nature, the way that it takes a unique shape with an expression within that culture. So first level of programming, universal human nature, it's inherited. It's part of our species. It's part of being an image bearer. It's part of being a fallen image bearer. The second level of our mental programming is culture, and the culture 
it, the, these cultures that, you know, we have the national social, we have maybe even beyond that, we might even have like what we might call um, like Western civilization, or we might hear expressions like Eastern thought. Maybe there's these even higher hyper objects. You'll have to go back to episode 77 for a breakdown of what hyper objects are. There's these even higher principalities, cultural principalities and powers, not that they're all negative, um, that we can even bunch particular nations together with. But we can take that all the way down to the micro level of families and churches. And in each of these, we find this interesting interaction. Each of these cultures interface and dialogue together. And sometimes these cultures and subcultures, they have a degree of harmony where the values and behaviors are complementary. Let's say, for example, a, a family culture. Let's say an immigrant family with a familial cultural value of working hard with their hands. Let's say they move into a blue-collar neighborhood in someplace like Pittsburgh or Detroit, my old hometown, where they, as a larger, but not national, we're still relatively local, local to blue-collar Pittsburgh, local to going to work Detroit, they find a shared local value of working hard with your hands. Those values and behaviors are in harmony. Their familial culture and the local neighborhood culture, the city culture they moved into in this particular hypothetical instance, are in harmony. The universal, in that case, the universal human nature for social acceptance, that desire and drive, will find harmonious expression for that particular family in that neighborhood they move into. But again, imagine if they move into a different neighborhood somehow, some, some place where um, that value isn't shared. Oftentimes, um, you know, people that come into a large lump sum of money, whether they've won the lottery or an inheritance or, you know, uh, or, or, or maybe they just made one amazing business decision and now they've moved into a new neighborhood, a new social status ladder. They find sometimes that those values that they had from their upbringing, um, this oftentimes maybe takes place for kids that were uh, second generation blue collar. So maybe their parents developed a construction company. They worked their way up the ladder. They developed a construction company that was really successful. Then as children, they enjoyed a particular standard of life. And then they move into uh, a neighborhood where the neighborhood doesn't necessarily share those same values. That's like a, oftentimes a difficult situation when you've made a, a, a quick change out of a particular subculture into a new culture. You find that there maybe is more dissonance than harmony. Now, while human nature is universal and it's inherited, culture is specific to a social group or a network of social groups, and it's learned. Culture is mental programming on the learned, the, not the nature level, but the nurture level. Now, there is a way in which the nature level does play a role in culture, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But it's important to understand, when we affirm that there's a universal human nature, that doesn't mean that all peoples everywhere should act the same way, have the same exact values, etc. 
I, that's not the case. That's not the case from a, uh, you know, biological, a social science standpoint. It certainly, I don't think is the case theologically that we, God is looking for some sort of completely monogam, you know, monogamous culture that has no variation, stripe, color, change, or difference. That's not the case. While human nature is universal, inherited culture is specific to a social group, and it's learned. This is learned behavior that emerges out of kind of the meeting of the top level and the bottom level of mental programming. So the top level is our universal human nature, and the bottom level, the third level of mental programming, or maybe we should say this is truly the top level, is our personality and genetics. You as an individual, your individual personality is both nature and nurture. It is shaped by genetic factors and learned behaviors. Typically, the learned behaviors that are within the most immediate spheres of culture around you, familial, uh, institutional, such as school or church community, religious community, uh, your your neighborhood, your city, your state spreading outward, your national values. These are the, the place in which maybe some of the culture intersects with our personality. But by and large part, much of our personality may not be that malle- malleable. It, it actually may be rather fixed and shaped by genetic factors. Um, we might just very well likely have in most areas of our individual personality a sort of fixed genetic predisposition that um, doesn't change all that much via learned behavior from parents, families, institutions, etc. For example, uh, you know, this is, this, there's been long-term study on this. Um, there's a whole host of helpful personality tests out there Myers-Briggs, um, Enneagram, the Big Five, Strength Finders, all of that stuff. And they're really, really helpful in, in maybe giving you language to better understand your own wiring. One of the ones I'm most fond of is the Big Five personality test because I think there's been the most rigorous and widely accepted among psychologists research into that particular personality test. That personality test, the Big Five, uh, it assesses or evaluates our predispositions in five categories. Those categories are your openness to experience. That's the first category. Uh, whether you are more um, conscientious and orderly or whether you're prone to more um, disorder and maybe spontaneity. Uh, extroversion versus introversion. Are you more extroverted or introverted? Agreeableness versus disagreeableness. Are you more likely to want to seek agreement in situations or do you have a personality predisposition that's like I'm fine in disagreement and some you probably many of you know right away as I say that which one you land into and the final category in that big five is neuroticism the long-term study of data from those who have taken the big five personality test and have taken it over time uh, and have taken it uh, over time and been reassessed in hopes that they could make improvements, what they perceive to be improvements in particular categories, the evidence shows that people generally do not make substantial changes in these areas over time. It's not all hope is lost. So for example, 
there's a certain probably minimal threshold of conscientiousness or orderliness that you need to be able to survive as a functioning adult in our society. Uh, the Big Five evaluates on a score of, uh, you know, one to 100. 100 being you are most in this category. So for example, if you got like a 98 in conscientiousness, you are on the extreme end of being orderly, on time, organized, neat, you know, a neat freak, uh, you know, all of these things. If you score that high in conscientiousness. So let's say you were at a point where you're at a pretty low threshold of conscientiousness, something that might be like, make it really difficult for you to function in a social group. Let's say you have like a, 10 in conscientiousness and orderliness. That's what you score as part of this evaluation. Boy, that's really, really tough. Now, can you make some improvements? Yeah, there's some, there's some evidence that people can make limited improvements. I don't, you know, I don't want to say this for certain um, as an exact number to make you think that, you know, a 10-point jump would be guaranteed. But let's say you can maybe move from 10 to 20. That, that would be a substantial improvement in conscientiousness, but uh, it, the likelihood that you're going to jump from being a 10 in your orderliness and conscientiousness all the way up to like a 70 or 80, there is little evidence that people make those kind of changes. And it's across the board in all of these categories. If you're very, very agreeable, let's say you're maybe too agreeable. There's a danger if you're a, a 90 in agreeableness that people just walk all over you and you can't make boundaries for yourself. You know, maybe you can scale back and improve your disagreeableness, which seems like a strange thing to say, but some people actually need to work on it by a few points. But there's little evidence over the long-term study of this data that people can make substantial changes, which leads us to believe that many of our personality traits are more inherited than learned behaviors. Now, simultaneously, I want to acknowledge there are substantial reports, whether they're anecdotal from the people that you know in your life, maybe in your church, that um, report demonstrable changes to their personality through things like, like religious experience, um, through uh, what you might call in evangelical circles, right, a conversion experience. What is the conversion experience if it doesn't change some features of your personality. Now, as part of a Christian conversion, <laughs> the promise of going from, uh, you know, low in conscientiousness to high in conscientiousness and orderliness? Probably not. <laughs> Does God work within our personalities to still bring about uh, good in the world and make us a blessing to other people? Yeah. So more than likely, what usually happens is people that are their personality predisposition, um, maybe are they're so disagreeable that they get into a lot of trouble. For example, in prisons, people, the, the prison population in America, uh, for those that have been uh, done this big five personality test, demonstrates a high degree of disagreeableness. People in prison are less agreeable than the general population on average. Could there be, through religious experience, through disciplined practice, a change to their personality, a substantial improvement? Yes. Sometimes even a traumatic event in someone's life can bring about substantial personality changes. So 
That's, that's why we don't want to deny the possibility that our personality can change with new learned behavior set in a new culture or a new subculture. It's very well possible. But a lar- we also don't want to undersign value to just our genetic predispositions, that we inherit certain attitudes, certain psychological chemistries that make us prone to particular things, and we have strengths and weaknesses. Now, what Hofstede's research was focused on was on the cultural level, that second level of human programming. And, and you guys that have listened to this podcast for several years uh, know how much of my focus and, and part of my own past graduate research has been focused on this intersection of culture and theology. So this is a domain that I find really interesting. In particular, uh, it's, it's Hofstede's rubric for naming and evaluating the dimensions of culture um, that I want to explore here today. And I, I think this, this, is, this is stuff that if you're not familiar with it, it's going to blow your mind. <laughs> I don't want to oversell it, but it's, it's really going to, I think it will really reshape uh, your understanding and maybe give you a better understanding for why people are the way that they are, which is a good thing, right? Hofstede's rubric for naming and evaluating these dimensions of culture, these were focused on the national societal level. And that's where I want to begin. But I don't want to just stay there. My hope is that we can take a look at the four dimensions. We're going to focus in on four out of the new updated six and focus in on those. And and then eventually I want to think about how smaller subcultures like church or other communities interface with the larger programming of values that happens in a national society. Okay, so are you ready? You might want to grab a notebook. I don't know if you guys take notes that listening at home like you're in a classroom. I'm going to try to provide some of the um, the charts and some of these uh, terms. I'll, I'll pr- try to provide some notes here. I'm going to put some of this stuff together in a way that's uh, digestible for others. And at some point here, I will put it on the Deep Talks Patreon community page for those of you that are supporting on Patreon that you'd be able to access this. But if you're not going to do that, um, this, I'd encourage you, you might want to jot some notes down as you're listening to this. You know, unless you're driving or something, then, then don't do that. All right. The first dimension of culture we'll focus on is what we can call the power distance. A power, the power distance dimension can be understood as the extent to which the less powerful members of institutions and organizations within a country expect and accept that power is distributed unequally. In other words, what is the gap between those at the bottom of hierarchies and governments, businesses, religious communities, families, etc., and those at the top? And how normal is it for everyone in that hierarchy to expect a large or small distance in the, that gap of power? So a small power distance society is one that expects the distance between the top of the hierarchy and the bottom of the hierarchy to be very small to be shrinking, in fact, and those that are in a large power distance culture and society, they expect and they accept that 
power is unequal, that there is a large distance between the top and the bottom. So what would be some differences between a small power distance culture and a large power distance culture? Well, in a small power distance culture, people believe that inequalities among people should be minimized. In a large power distance culture, people feel that those inequalities among people are just normal, and in fact, even desired. In a small power distance culture, people believe there should be, and there is to some extent, interdependence between less and more powerful people. Whereas in the large power distance culture, less powerful people should be dependent on the more powerful. In practice, less powerful people are polarized between dependence and counterdependence. You might see, in a, co- a small power distance culture, parents treat children as equals. But in a large power distance, parents would typically treat children as obedient servants. Children then, in a small power distance culture, they look at parents as equals. That would not be the case in a large power distance culture where children treat parents with utmost respect, nay even fear. (laughs) Teachers in a small power distance culture might expect initiatives be taken from students in class. They might see themselves as experts who transfer impartial truths and students in like treat teachers as equals. Not so much in a large power distance. In, those, in that setting, in an educational setting, teachers are expected to take all the initiative in class. They're more like gurus who transfer personal wisdom. Students are expected and demanded to treat teachers with respect as people on top of their particular educational hierarchy. In those small power distance cultures, you might, you would be more common to find people with the value of having less authoritarian values, right? More educated people typically have less authoritarian values than less educated persons. But when you go over to a large power distance culture, and we'll give some examples in a little bit, both the less educated and the more educated people show almost equally authoritarian values. That's a huge difference. It may be common here in the U.S., for example, where um, I'll just, spoiler alert, I'll tell you one insight from the U.S. before we break down some of these different uh, national cultural values. We are not a large power distance culture. So in the U.S., you are going to find that people that are more educated expect less authoritarian interaction in their workplace, in their schools. This is, this is a very normal feature for so many of you who might listen and maybe you have college degrees or more than that and you work in an environment that is um, more egalitarian and less authoritarian. But then some of you listen, you know, you might have more blue-collar work. You might not have a college education or one of these institutional educations. Maybe you work with your hands. Maybe you are a skilled laborer. And it might be more common for you to expect your boss to talk to you a particular way or the foreman on the construction site to speak to you a particular way that's maybe much more like the military than an egalitarian office, a familial sort of, um, you know, business setting. That's 
what it's like in the U.S., which has a small power distance. But you take other cultures that have a larger power distance, and you know what? It doesn't matter how educated you are. Everybody essentially, uh, you know, not at the individual level. This is a, maybe a generalization. You're going to certainly find individuals that this may vary. But by and large part, most educated people and most people who are uneducated, they both are fine with authoritarian values. In those smaller power distance cultures, you're going to find that people look at hierarchy in organizations as sort of a, just there because of convenience. We have to distribute different roles to different people. And that's a very, that, that's a very different way of looking at it than if you were in a large power distance culture where hierarchy in organizations, that, that's simply the the existential inequality between people at the top and people at the bottom. It's baked into the system. It might even be in some cases uh, where, you know, the, the religious narrative informs this sort of, of hierarchical, existential, ontological hierarchy of reality, that some people are just at the top and some people are just at the bottom, and you just accept that. Now, a really weird dynamic for some people to wrap their minds around, especially those that have predominantly operated in not just in the national culture, but even in subcultures that are uh, that try to minimize, try to have a small power distance. They cannot understand when they see in other subcultures um, or different national cultures. They just can't understand. Why the people that are, let's say, managers or pastors or politicians, they can't understand why those people are um, celebrated for their marks of status and privilege. You can see this oftentimes in different church cultures. You can have in some church cultures an expectation of a large, large power distance that goes relatively unquestioned. Um, you see this actually a lot. Let's, you see this a lot in some African-American churches, for example. Let's take the Church of God in Christ uh, as one particular denomination where uh, it's expected that the pastor and the first lady, the pastor's wife, or she might be a pastor or, or an apostle, those sorts of designations are, are common, and they're important that those people are addressed like that, apostle so-and-so, pastor so-and-so, bishop so-and-so, and it's expected that they drive really nice cars, that they're among some of the wealthiest in their community. Whereas in other low church contexts, let's say a, maybe a more reformed background, you know, a, a low church experience with more of a congregational governance it might be common that you just don't even use the term pastor. You might just interact with your pastor as Steve or Sally or Bob or whatever their name their name might be. And they might tend to steer themselves away from certain marks of status and privilege. And sometimes people that have spent time in one church and they look over at the other church, they can't understand. They can't understand why why isn't your pastor dressed nicer? Why do they drive such a beater car? On the other side, the, the, the other group goes, why in the world is your pastor wearing such a gaudy suit? And why do they drive the nicest vehicle in the church? And that doesn't make sense to me. And these are 
these are cultural differences. You know, and I'm telling these are subcultures that I'm referring to as examples. But you can see these sorts of things on the national and macro level. The small power distance and large power distance uh, cultural differences can also be seen in the realm of politics and ideas. Where in small power distance cultures, the use of power should always be legitimate and it's subject to criteria of good and evil and typically the will of people underneath. Not the case in large power distance cultures. Might makes right. (laughs) Who has the power is right and good. And there's a, a sort of, um, you know, the divine right of kings. This used to be the more medieval conception, pre-Enlightenment, pre-American and French Revolution in Europe, where it was expected that there would be this significant gap. You, you see this in, in uh, the, the dynasties of, of China throughout history, this huge gap between, let's say, the emperor of the the Qin dynasty, and you as a peasant. And what makes right and wrong is the will of the person in power. Skills, wealth, power, and status, they don't have to go together in small distance cultures, but they should go together in large power distance cultures. That's the expectation. You typically have a large middle class in small power distance cultures, but you usually have a very small, what we might call middle class and large power distance cultures. There's not that much at the, of a mediating gap between the top of the hierarchical pyramid and the bottom. It's typically smaller. You usually have a very large um, lower class and a very, very elite top upper class. So these are, these are significant cultural differences. And it can be so strange for us to try to understand these from different cultures and even our different subcultures. Why is it that I, I just can't wrap my mind around why powerful people try to look less powerful than they are? And you're going to feel that way if you live in a place like Malaysia, Mexico, China, or Saudi Arabia, places where there is a large power distance. You look at someone who's in a position of prominence, and if they try to underplay their prominence, you're scratching your head, right? You're scratching your head as to why people in America are so perplexed about, well, let's take, for example, this one. This one's a real head-scratcher for, for some people within our country, right? And uh, you see with the, the Trump administration that, that Trump has employed a lot of family members and, uh, into his inner circle in the White House. This is a common feature in large power distance societies. They don't, they don't think twice about it, but it's really frowned upon by a lot of people in our, our current culture because it is, um, it's a small power distance culture. You get a position of power because you have earned it through your expertise, uh, you've earned it through um, climbing a particular status ladder and climbing it the right way. So those are big differences. You know, you, you see these things and, you know, you saw them throughout medieval history, right? That there is families and friends, you know, it's the divine right of kings. You, you know, you, I guess you still see it in the UK. We've been watching the, the queen, my wife and I on, on Netflix. And certainly that, that was the case in the monarchical system. In each of these respective cultural differences, religion and philosophical systems will stress things that support that value. In fact, it may even be that those particular narrative systems are the things that 
have informed the value to begin with. And they end up being reinforced unless you end up having some sort of culture war, which we can, we can talk about later. Prevailing religions and philosophical systems stress equality in small power distance cultures. That's the emphasis, the equality of, of individuals, an emphasis on perhaps caring for the poor, or even looking after the least of these, that we are all the same. Whereas large power distance cultures, no, the prevailing religious systems and philosophical systems will stress the the normalcy of hierarchy and stratification. Now, it's important to realize that this isn't necessarily right or wrong categories automatically just because we are in a particular culture. I think probably many of you that hear the difference between large and small power distance societies would go, I don't know, the the large power distance seems evil. It seems sinister. We think of, you know, the empire with Emperor Palpatine at the top, right? And there's a huge power distance even between Palpatine and, and Vader, and they make sure they keep that power distance. So we have as part of our narratives this suspicion of large power distance, but it's the same thing that happens in other cultures. They, they see the pros and the cons of, or they see the cons of the small power distance societies. And then there are some ways that we go, well, okay. Like, like, how much anxiety and frustration do people experience in small power distance societies always trying to close the gap or climb their way up a particular ladder because they feel like they can? Whereas, is there a sense of almost like a, a freeing experience of just going, I'm accepting my particular role and I'm going to just find joy in it? That certainly is the case in a lot of large power distance societies where they just go, I know my role, I know I'm going to be here, and I'm going to be happy in it. Whereas in small power distance societies, you know, you might experience a great level of frustration when you believe you can move your way up the hierarchy based on your competency. And if you don't move, it's like, well, you're not competent. (laughs) You don't have the expertise. You know, there's, that's on you, buddy. And and that can be really, um, really challenging for people, right? So you can see in some ways that there is a way that people in large power distance societies can see the benefit. They can, they can see that, um, especially if you're at the top of the ladder, you're going, man, this is a pretty good deal. I want to keep this system in place. Now, I know that, that that's, that's obviously a small power distance critique for me. But, uh, you know, if you're in that particular place, you're going, this is, this is pretty good. I don't want to narrow the power distance. That means me giving up perhaps some of my privileges and things like that. So you can see why some people that are in large power distance societies go, hey, this is, this is pretty good. Sometimes you might even have the case where um, because the bureaucratic system of a small power distance can become incompetent, you might find large power distance societies if they have a good, a kind king, a benevolent dictator, may be able to accomplish particular things more quickly, more efficiently. That's certainly a possibility. So let's, let's consider some of these uh, national societal examples of some of the highest and lowest ranking um, in, in the, w- w- what is called the power distance index. 
Some examples of society with the highest ranked power distances, meaning the cultural values and behaviors in that society demonstrate a preference for the large gap of power between those on the top and the bottom are places like Malaysia, Mexico, China, and Saudi Arabia. While those with some of the lowest power distances would be Austria, Israel, Denmark, New Zealand, and that gets you thinking, well, where does the United States rank? Well, I've already said the United States is fairly a small power distance society. Austria, for example, they have the lowest power distance index score, which is at 11. Malaysia has the highest power distance score at 104. The United States has a score of 40. This means that in at least this particular dimension, we have similar cultural values to the UK, Australia, Germany, Costa Rica, and Jamaica. We are more likely in our macro level of culture in as a whole. This doesn't include particular subcultures, but we are more likely to perceive power distances as wrong than right in the U.S., this is why we cheer for the rebels and we boo the empire in Star Wars. Yet, compared to a place like Denmark, with a power distance score of 18, we would value and act as if we don't see all power distances as bad. Denmark is going to look at the United States and they're going to go and be like, hey, you know, in your corporate world, for example, you know, your CEOs, they make way more money. I mean, there's way too much of a power distance between Jeff Bezos and the guy working in the warehouse at Amazon. How do you let that happen? So we are not like China or Saudi Arabia, but we would certainly still be seen as having a larger power distance compared to places like Denmark. The second dimension of culture we'll focus on next is individualism versus collectivism. What is the relationship between the individual and larger social groups? Individualism places a primary focus on the self-determination of individuals and the individual as a basic unit versus a family or social group as the basic unit of value. What is the general norm in the family, workplace, school, and community in individualistic cultures and collectivist cultures. Well, here's some practical examples to help you understand the differences. In a collectivist culture, people are born into extended families or other in-groups, which continue to protect them in exchange for loyalty. In individualist cultures, everyone grows up to look after him or herself and their immediate, or what we often call in America, their nuclear family only. In the, uh, in the collectivist culture, identity is based in the social network to which one belongs. It's maybe a family, a religious network, There's whatever the social group is, and there's varying uh, emphases on which social group is primary. Identity is based on your connection to a group. Very different in individualist societies. Individualist societies, obviously, the identity is base, the basic unit is the individual. So in those societies, children learn to think of themselves in terms of I, whereas in collectivist societies, children tend to think of themselves, they learn how to think of themselves in terms of we. 
And you can see these sorts of differences, maybe even in the differences between uh, different church traditions. Let's take Protestant evangelical culture in America. We might commonly find our worship songs and prayers filled with I expressions. We think of ourselves as individuals relating to God, individuals in need of salvation. Whereas maybe you go and visit a, let's say, a synagogue for Orthodox Jews, and you're going to find most of the prayers and petitions are prayed in terms of we. You've entered in as a uh, Orthodox Jew. If you convert to Judaism, you are you have a new identity as part of a particular group. In collectivist cultures, the goal is harmony, and we want to maintain harmony, and we want to avoid direct confrontations that threaten harmony, but not the case in an individualist society where the value is placed on speak your mind, right? Be honest, be authentic. And people that come from these different sides of the uh, aisle here have a really hard time understanding each other's differences on this. Individualist cultures, they go, why wouldn't you just speak your mind? You got to be honest about stuff. Collectivist cultures, like, no, 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 no. It's not an I, it's a we. It's not a me, it's a we. So I need to figure out how I can keep harmony. And I don't want to have confrontations that threaten the group. Because you are part of a group first in collectivist cultures, it is a relatively high context needed level of communication. I say high context because you need to understand the ins and outs and inner workings of the group in order to understand their communication. Um, and oftentimes that, that means less communication is necessary or fewer numbers of words are needed to communicate particular ideas because you already have been programmed with the particular context. Versus an individualistic society, which is low context communication, especially when you get across different subcultures and you have to explain things more. There's not as, you don't have as much context um, built into you because you're an individual. So a great example of this to help you understand the difference might be if you've ever played a sport growing up. Um, when I was growing up, I played basketball. So I can talk basketball terminology with somebody with very little need for explanation. When I'm communicating on the court and playing pickup ball still, I might go screen, switch, 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 switch. Someone that's played basketball for a long time knows there's someone on offense setting a pick on me or you on defense. And instead of me guarding my guy, we're going to switch. I'm going to guard your guy. You're going to guard mine. All I need to say is screen, switch. It takes two words. That's because I've been in a sense, part of a basketball collective for quite some time that someone else has shared in as well. Now, somebody that doesn't have that experience in that particular collective, that community, it's going to take a lot more communication. For example, I'm teaching uh, sixth graders how to play basketball. I coach my son's sixth grade team. Because they have not been initiated into the basketball collective yet properly, there's a lot of explanation that has to happen. And this is the case, and this, is, this can be particularly difficult. Let's zoom out from that particular example and zoom out and 
consider how we communicate to people across cultures. This is one of the areas that makes cult- cross-cultural communication so difficult, is the difference in the level of context necessary to communicate ideas. A major difference between the collectivist mindset, the individualist cultural mindset, is how people think of sins and trespasses. In individualist societies, ones like the United States, which, by the way, is the number one ranked individualist society in the individualist uh, index, uh, it is by far and away the most individualistic. So we can get this if you live in America. You understand that doing something wrong, the thing that you are afraid of, or the thing you don't want to experience is guilt and the loss of self-respect. I've done something wrong. I feel guilty. Um, I feel terrible about this. I, I'm, I feel a sense like I've lost respect in my position in the hierarchy or whatever. In a collectivist society, it's very different. It's trespasses, wrongdoings, there is a real sense of shame, a shame that leads you to feel like you've let down the group. All right, and so this is this is why you might see, for example, ritual suicide in Japan, where somebody feels like they may have brought shame upon their family, and the expectation is that suicide would be better than marring the the, the honor of the the family or the group. I mean, this is why. Go back to World War II. Jap- the Japanese and the Japanese are much more collectivist society than the United States. The United States, the, the, the um, Navy, Air Force, Marines, the armed forces couldn't wrap their minds around the Japanese tactic of kamikaze bombing. Like, how could you, how could you talk someone into hopping into a plane and uh, just killing themselves in the plane? You could almost never imagine an American being convinced to do that. It was much more easy in Japan where the, the collectivist value programs you to say, hey, you know what? What's most valuable isn't me. It's the group. And I have this national and family honor I have to uphold. And I'm actually upholding my national and family honor by killing myself in this kamikaze attack. It's so difficult for us to understand those differences between cultures. But it's normative. It's normative based on the way the culture shapes and programs you. Man, it's just so fascinating, uh, these little details about life that we overlook and we don't see how this cultural programming actually it, it has completely shaped us, right? And we don't really see it until maybe we compare cultures. Like, you know, you compare a place like Japan, high collectivist culture versus the United States, um, which is... Uh, much more like the most individualistic culture, you know, you can, you can find right um, (laughs) out there. You compare those two cultures and it's even just in little things. Like, for example, like what motivates you to get a degree, a college degree, improve your education? Well, right in the, in the U S you are motivated in an individualistic culture for the increased economic worth that you now have 
the self-respect you have as an individual. It's an individual status thing, right? Not so in a collectivist culture. You pursue higher education in order to enter into higher status groups. And that's the thing that motivates you. You might say, well, it's kind of the same. No, an individual, you're building your brand. And yes, that gives you status. So there's the universal human nature side of this, which is like, I want social acceptance. But you gain social acceptance as an individual that's mobile enough to like go, "Eh, I don't know if I like this group or not. But I have enough economic worth. I have enough status where I could move across multiple groups, right? Mm, not the same. Not the same desire for education or um, improving in your job or your vocation, your career in a place like Japan. It's like no, we are. I am driven to go. I am moving my family's honor into a higher status. I'm going to enter into a higher status social group. That's the primary driver. In those cultures, the relationship between employer-employee is thought about in terms of like, like family, right? They are moral terms. This is a, this is a family relationship when you enter into a, a line of work. This is why in more collectivist cultures, if you were to do business somewhere, you're going to find they do things like, well, we're going to, we're going to treat you like family. We're going to talk to you about what's going on in your life and your world. And it's, it's not just to butter you up to make a deal, although that can be part of it. It's that that's just how business is done. It's much more familial. In the U.S., right, the, the, the corporate world is much more like this is a mutual contract. I'm to your advantage, you're to my advantage, and when that ceases to happen, I can move on, right? I can move on when I don't think that this employment is to my advantage anymore. And then the boss or your employer goes, you know what? If you're not to my advantage, we're going to move on from you. So this is a very, very different, but we don't notice it. We just think, wow, this is just the norm until we actually begin to assess and compare these cultural differences. Management is like managing, focused on managing groups. If you're a manager, if you're a leader of people, you're leading groups. In the U.S., you're focused on, I got to manage these particular individuals. In that way, you have task over relationship in individualistic cultures. In collectivist cultures, the relationship is over the task. Now, some of the biggest noticeable differences especially as we're starting to see, and we've, we have seen for quite some time, but especially it seems like it's ramped up, a cultural collision even here in the U.S. between do we, factions that say, hey, we want to remain a largely individualistic culture versus other factions that go, I, we want to move our national culture in the direction of a more collectivist frame. We start to really see major differences that are quite noticeable when we get into the world of politics and ideas between collectivist and individualist cultures. In a collectivist culture, it's the collective interest over the individual interest versus individualistic cultures where the individual interest prevails over a collective interest. We want to preserve, you know, we want to preserve individual freedom, even if that means the collective is damaged by that. And we'll talk more about that as it relates to the, the pandemic response uh, towards the end of this mega episode. I mean, this is, this is obviously a, a doozy. I don't know if I'm going to split this up into two parts or not, or just 
leave it all together as one and let you break it up over time on your own pace. But that's this big, big difference. In a lot of ways, what you're seeing between the left and the right in the American spectrum is a difference between a more collectivist approach among the progressive left versus a more individualistic approach among the conservative right. Do we allow individuals to pursue their own ends and to deal with the consequences? Or is it our goal to think of our nations, our states, particular groups of people, demographics as collectives, where we must put the collective interest over the individual? That's really a huge part of the political debate that's happening in the U.S. It's really a cultural debate. And in this cultural difference, right, you are more than fine as a collectivist. It's like, I don't have a private life. My life is defined by the group. So we don't think about privacy. Yeah, that's like just unfathomable to the individualist culture. It's like, no, you have a right to privacy. You, nobody can just step in to your, your house. We see these you know, we see these scenes from maybe other places in the world like China where there's a more collectivist society and we, we saw these, you know, particular scenes where um, drones were, were going door to door at the beginning of the pandemic, encouraging, telling people you need to go back inside and like, we would never let that happen because that's a, like, you know, sorts of privacy invasions. That's creepy. And they're like, no, this is the thing that promotes the collective. And it's such a, a huge divide. Your opinions are largely predetermined by a group, the group that you're affiliated with in a collectivist culture, whereas an individualist culture, like you're pushed and encouraged to have a private opinion. Laws and rights differ by groups among collectivists, but in individualist societies, you're supposed to have all the same rights for all. That's a big difference. This is a difference between historically like um, Indian, like the content um, in Asian Indian, not Native American, laws and rights are different depending on where you're at in the caste system versus American culture, which was supposed to be, right? We're, we don't always experience this same rights and laws for all. Another obvious difference is in the role of the press. You see in collectivist societies and cultures, you see the press being controlled by the state. The state is supposed to act as the will of the collective, not, so, not necessarily that which informs and protects the individual. In individualistic countries, it's like, no, the press should have freedom to say what they want, you know, to speak whatever, whatever is on the individual um, journalist or reporter's mind. And that's, that's a value that we just... It, we just can't see eye to eye on with collectivist cultures. It's like, ooh, state-controlled press, that's, that's crazy. But in places where they're like, hey, you can't just let anybody say anything that they want. <laughs> that's absurd because that threatens the stability and the harmony of the group. So can you see that difference, right? In some ways, you know, we might experience this as, well, this is clearly right and wrong. But you know what? That's largely a part of the cultural programming that we find ourselves situated within. I'm not saying there isn't a right or wrong. I'm not saying there isn't a way that we would say is, um, is better than ought. I'm just saying, like, before we jump to that, we should recognize, hey, you know, a lot of this, I can kind of see the point. I can see the point of limiting opinions when it causes dysfunction and, harm and disharmony. 
to the group. I mean, this is largely to bring it back into current events. This was largely the the concern of the Trump administration over his four year term was that the the freedom of the press, the press seemed to always be critiquing everything that he did, whether it was warranted or unwarranted, is largely a matter of your political persuasion. But it was constant, constant critique all the time. He said this, he said this, he tweeted this, right? And, and by and large part, what, I, what Trump wanted to do was, in some sense, limit the freedom of the press because he saw it as causing division, um, dissonance, not, not uh, promoting a more harmonious union, right? It was a personal threat to him too as well. There's certainly that's a factor. But you can kind of see it's like, hey, you know what? Like there are some areas um, in which you go, uh, I wonder if the good things this particular administration did were vastly outshadowed by particular agendas of people that just didn't like him and admittedly for some good reasons <laughs> to not like him. This is why if you magnify that out, you can, you can kind of see why collectivist cultures go, hey, you know what, allowing people to say whatever they want in the press and in these forms of mass communication, this causes dissonance. It, it erodes our harmony. It's a threat to the group. And the group is the most important thing. And we just can't get in our individualistic American mind that mindset. It's a huge difference. And I don't know if we can say automatically one is definitively right and one is definitively wrong. There are strengths and weaknesses to both approaches. You can even just think about, like, especially within the Christian frame, you know, in individualistic societies, the, 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 the focus on, on life and your goal in life is oftentimes framed as like self-actualization, right? As an individual. And it can be really detached from groups, from actual people. It's about yourself, your self-individualization, you reaching your potential, you achieving the American dream, which is an elevation of your individual status. And you can kind of see, at least as you step back, and you read the Christian, uh, you understand the Christian narrative, you read the, the, the scriptures, you can see how that, that's, that's at, in some ways, that is at odds with the message of Jesus. This isn't always that clear. I'm not going to say it's automatic. We can go through each one of these things and go, well, is it clear that the, 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 the culture of the kingdom of God pushes us to be collectivist or individualistic? I'm not saying it's always clear, but in some of these areas we go, yeah, you know, maybe just self-actualization, like I'm on an island by myself, that's an extreme that isn't good. And, and we maybe there's something we can learn from collectivist cultures. What, collect, what cultures out there are the most individualistic and the most collectivist, just as an example? I've already said this several times. Number one, the United States, where I live, where probably most of you listeners live, is the most individualistic national culture in the world. This is why many other national societal cultures scratch their head when they see our defense of the Second Amendment and gun rights. Others who have moved here from other countries or spent time in other places the world struggle to understand it too. That's because they don't get the cultural value of the individual rights to self-determination, including the right and responsibility of self-defense. 
And I have dear friends. I know people that are, are fierce Second Amendment defenders, pro-gun right defenders. And uh, I'm not saying that's good or bad thing, but I want to help some of you that go, I just can't wrap my mind around that, understand their frame of reference. They are fierce defenders, many of them, of the Second Amendment, not because they want to go have a school shooting or go out and murder someone, but because they honestly believe that the most loving and just thing we can do for another person is to preserve their individual ability to protect themselves from harm without being dependent on a function of a social group like a city police department. This is the individualistic value, and we need to understand the connection between that value, that it isn't automatically for someone a selfish thing. It might be that people see the individualistic frame as the frame that creates the most just, the most peaceful, and the most prosperous society. And so they certainly have a point, right? You know? Most collectivist national cultures uh, are not as financially prosperous as individualist cultures. And with that comes all sorts of other issues, right? And so to take down one facet of individualism is perceived by many people that are defenders of individualistic, of the individualistic frame as a threat to the entire system, Uh, To give you a few examples of some of the national cultures that are more collectivist would be, um, for example, Guatemala. Guatemala is ranked as the most collectivist culture in the world. Our most comparative cultures that value individualism close to what we have in the U.S. are Australia, uh, the U.K., Canada, the Netherlands, and New Zealand. One of the things that you notice right away if you plot the power distance index and the individual and the individualism index out on a graph is you know as a xy axis here is that there is obvious correlation between low power distance societies and highly individualistic societies and that makes some sense highly individualistic societies are are more likely going to be ones that go, hey, we want to have minimal power gaps between the bottom and the top because I want to be able to work my way to the top. And I actually see the person at the top and the bottom as having equal value, even if their financial value and status isn't this, you know, the financial status isn't the same. At its basic unit of measurement, those individuals both have value. That is the ideal right? So they close the power gap between the two. So you plot these out on the graph. And I'm going to see if I can include something like this for on Patreon um, to help you guys see some of these plot points. In these two dimensions, you could, you know, if you see the, the countries that are close to each other on this graph, you could probably discern that moving from a place like the, the United States to Australia or to the UK, um, you could do that and probably not experience a massive cultural shock in values versus moving from like the U.S. to Guatemala, where Guatemala has a huge power dis- uh, difference distance gap and a much more collectivist culture than the U.S. That over the long haul would be a massive culture shock. One other interesting thing, as you look at the most collectivist countries and the most individualistic countries in the world is when you look at the gross domestic product, which 
that is the sum total of all the things produced in that country. It's typically a measurement of wealth. And if you look at the gross domestic product per capita, right? So per capita means we kind of just, we narrow or we eliminate some of the huge GDP differences that are a result of just, there's more people living in this country. One of the things that should instantly jump out to you is that the more collectivist countries tend to tend to be some of the materially poorest nations. It's an interesting thing to observe. And, and, you know, there's certainly some good question. Does this mean that collectivist values are incompatible with material wealth? Or rather, do collectivist bonds emerge out of necessity when material resources are scarce? I do believe, I could be wrong in this, I do believe it was more of, of um, Hofsvidi's opinion that collectivist values emerge out of necessity rather than um, collectivist values limit material wealth. But there's a good case for both, right? You could see either or, but it, it does make some sense. When there's a scarcity of resources, you tend to need to bond together and share together more. When there's a surplus of resources, you're more free to have those resources, a little easy for me to say, those resources to yourself. And um, you might not be feeling as much of a need of dependence on other people for your self-preservation. So that's a really interesting dynamic. Obviously, as you look at, if you just look at, you know, GDP numbers, you see, China is uh, different in this regard. It's collectivist, but it's one of the, you know, it's number two behind the United States in total GDP. But again, that's really the result of sheer population numbers. Because if you look at the GDP per capita, China is 59th in the world. So it certainly seems to, you know, enforce that collectivist cultures tend to not pursue or to be as concerned about material well, wealth and well-being as individualistic cultures. All right, so it's at this point I've made a decision to split this up into two parts. Um, we are getting, we're heading into the third and fourth dimension of culture that I want to explore. And the third one is probably among the most controversial categories, and it, it needs a lot of time and focus, and I want to give it that proper time. We could just make this, you know, like one three-hour episode, but I think for the, the sake of functionality, I'm, I'm going to split this into two, but I'm going to release them together right away um, so you won't have to wait a week in between and kind of forget what this is all about. I'm going to release both of them together, I think probably within the same, you know, within a 24-hour or 48-hour period. So you could jump in from one to the other, but uh, make sure, make sure you finish part two, because part two of this is going to be really, really crucial. So far, we are just still setting the table, helping you understand some of these ways that culture programs us and the dimensions of culture. And we need to finish the rest of them. Uh, we need to get into the third and the fourth dimension. There's some fascinating insights from these, um, the research into these dimensions of culture and what happens in different national, social, social uh, society level cultures that I think is mind blowing. It really is. It's, I think you'll find it to be incredibly helpful. Plus, we are going to have a 
sort of concluding discussion at the end, exploring, you know, a little bit of how how does how do our subcultures, in particular here in the U.S., the sorts of micro and subcultures interface and interact with the larger cultural values of our American society? Thinking in particular about some of the the movements that have happened that we've seen happen in the in the past year on the political spectrum, the the civil um, the civil movements, the social justice movements, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's Proud Boys versus Antifa, um, whether it's you know the, the BLN movement and then the counter response among traditional American um, cultures that say you know this is a Marxist coup to helping us understand how Christian communities interface with our cultural values and the values of other cultures. So that's all going to be in part two, including my, you know, every episode, thank you to everybody in the Deep Talks Patreon community that are supporting at that theology 201 level or higher. I'm going to make sure you guys all get thanked by name. But right now we're at like an hour and 15. We're going to break this thing up. So this is part one. Once you finish this, jump into part two. All right. All right. We're going to get right into it. I promise there won't be a week gap or multiple week gap. All right. So remember, keep your notes, <laughs> keep your notes. Hopefully you've taken on this and then we will um, then, then go right into whenever it's convenient for you go into part two of this two part series. <laughs>